Yeah, here we are. Well, I'm looking forward to this evening. I've been um, reading up on this passage for a few weeks now, and I've been challenged as I've been doing that. Um, and I, I'll, I'll be honest, I find this, chal- this, this passage quite difficult to, to get my head around, not because the, the obvious points of it aren't easy to get through, but Paul does seem to go around in circles a bit as, as we go through. So as we go through, just bear with me. I'm probably going to spend, I've got four points for you this evening, and I'm probably going to spend most of the time on the first one, but don't judge the rest of the message by the length of the first point. Probably, as I begin, it's probably worth saying that if you're a visitor today, if you don't normally come to Chesington Evangelical Church, or maybe you're not a Christian, and one of the reasons that you, you struggle with Christian, Christianity is that you're worried that all they're after is your money. Let, let me tell you, as, as we look at this service, which is um, this passage, which is about giving pr- primarily, um, with the reason we're on this passage is because we've been working through this book called Second Corinthians, and now we've got to this passage, which is about Christian giving. So, so we're here, not because we do this every week, but because as we've read through the Bible, because we trust the entirety of God's word, this is where God's brought us today. And I trust that you're not here by accident, that God has brought you here to hear something wonderful about the gospel, and, um, and that you will, if you listen, will hear something beautiful, and I pray that that will be the case. Um, but this is a really important subject. Money is an important subject especially for us in, in the part of the world that generally have it here in Chesington. You see, we, we don't tend to think of money like this, but, but money really does have a chokehold over us. It, it's one of the things that we put our trust in to, to, to provide our security on a daily basis. We think as long as we've got regular money coming into our bank account, we'll be okay. And actually, anything that we want to do that would, would increase our comfort in life, where does that come from? Well, that comes from our bank accounts, doesn't it? So, so, so gradually, we, we, we build up the money that we have, and the more we get, the, more, the danger is the more worried we get about losing it, and money can grab hold of us. And when we get to the point of hearing a sermon about giving, we are prepared with, with a big list of reasons why we don't need to give more. Okay, or we don't need to be challenged in this area because we're so protective about this. And actually, let's be honest, we're British. We don't like talking about money, do we? We like to keep that stuff a secret. But this passage is wonderful because it starts, um, we'll, we'll meet in a few moments, a church which has been freed from the chokehold of finances, of money. They're no longer um, slaves to it, but have been absolutely freed by it. And if we get what they got then we can be freed from it too. Uh, So it starts off in verse 1, And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace God has given to the church, to the Macedonian churches. You notice that he calls what he's about to reveal to us a gift, a, a, a grace that God has given, a gift of grace. So what we're about to do is we're going we're gonna to expand what that gift was to this church. And I've got four points we're going to look at this evening. The first one is extravagant Christian giving. The second point is acceptable Christian giving. Then accountable Christian giving. And finally, we're going to look at cheerful Christian giving. Yes, cheerful giving. Okay. So the first point, extravagant Christian giving, is verses eight, chapter 8, verses 1 to 9. Now, verse 2 it's just an amazing verse. Let's just read that out. In the midst, this is talking about the Macedonian churches. In the midst of severe trial, their overflowing joy and extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. See, Paul has gone to visit this struggling church 
and he's told them about the needs of another struggling church in Jerusalem. And they heard of this, and in the midst of severe trial and extreme poverty, what's the result? What comes out of them? Rich generosity. Rich generosity. A poor, struggling church gives extremely generously. Let's just look at how extremely generously it was. Verse 3, for I testify that they gave as much as they were able. They, 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 looked at, they worked at exactly what they could give and they gave that. And then he puts it even further, and then beyond their ability. They literally gave more than they could afford, this poor and struggling church. Okay, and then it says, entirely on their own. It's not that Paul was twisting their arm or making them feel guilty, or even that he was preaching a, ser- a sermon on generosity. They just heard the need of the struggling church in Jerusalem, and they, they wanted to give completely on their own accord. And, and, and get this, they even pleaded for the privilege to do so. Look at that. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. Wow! What generosity! I've never seen anything like this. This is amazing. But the truth is, what, what led them to this point? Well, we're told um, that it was they wanted to share with the Lord's people. So they saw a need. They heard this need. And they, they just wanted to give. And they gave ex- in, exceeding, in an exceeding way, exceeding Paul's expectations. But there's that verse in verse 5. This is one of the reasons they were able to give in such a liberal way. They gave themselves first to the Lord. What does that mean? They gave themselves to the Lord. Basically, what it is, is that, is that as they're pouring out their pockets, as they're emptying their cupboards, as they're selling what they need to sell to in order to send money to this, this other church, they're literally laying their hand, their life, in the hands of God. They're saying, look, we don't know where our next meal's going to come from, but we're going to give you our money anyway, and by so doing, we are trusting that God will provide for us. They're literally trusting God for their lives. They trust themselves, first of all, to the Lord. So that's one of the reasons they're able to do this, because they trust God that much. And then, by the will of God to us also. So it's not only that they're trusting God, but they've met Paul, who's shared the gospel with them, and now they're entrusting this man with all their worldly goods. Now, if you were Paul, would you want to take their money? Probably not which is why you can understand why they literally pleaded with him to do so. This is amazing. Their lives were literally now in the Lord's hands and literally also in Paul's hands, and he is taking this on. Now, what can we learn from this? There's loads of things, but the one thing that kind of strikes out above, above all else to me is you don't need money to be generous. You don't need to be rich to be generous. You don't need to have lots of money to be generous. You don't need a better job before you can be generous. You don't need a bigger house before you can be generous. You don't need to to have the extension added to your home before you can be generous. You don't need money to be generous. You need to trust God to be generous. And this isn't the only biblical example of generosity, is it? There's loads we can think of. There's, there's some in, 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 in the Gospels, too, come to my mind. First one is the little boy with his packed lunch. You know the story? 
Jesus turns up to, to preach in the, in the wilderness. Nobody else is there. With, nobody else thought to bring any food, but this little boy got his, got his loaves and his fish. Everybody else is starving. What does, G, what does he do? He, he offers his little to Jesus. And Jesus does amazing things with it, and he feeds 5,000 people. And the little boy ends up with 12 basketfuls later on. He walks away with, with so much more. And then there's the widow's mite. You know, Jesus is sat in the temple and he's watching all these people who are bringing their gifts and all these wealthy people are throwing in their money and everyone's wowed by just how generous these rich people are. And in comes this quiet lady, a widow, no money. All she's got is, to all, all her name is this mite, this tiny little coin, a penny, less than a penny. That's all she's got to live on. And what does she do? She puts that silently into the offering and wanders off. Nobody else sees it. But Jesus sees it. The king of the universe sees it. And it's not a wasted gift. It's, it's a generous gift as she is trusting in God to provide her needs. Does anybody here doubt that God provided for that woman? And just think how, how over the years that gift has been liberally magnified as her legacy has been handed down to Christian upon Christian upon Christian. Think about how many bank accounts have been laid open because they've been moved by the generosity of that woman with her one might. You don't need to be rich to be generous. You don't need deep pockets. You need deep hearts. That's something we can easily learn from this church. And, and Paul wants, he's telling the, the, the Corinthians about this gift, this liberal gift from this struggling poor church, because he wants them to grow in their extravagant giving. So in verse 6, we urge Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also a completion, the act of, the, of grace on your part. So the gift of grace to the Macedonians was that they would give money. And here the grace is the same thing, that they would continue and act on that way. And Paul wants them to excel in this gift. Look at verse 7. Since you excel in everything, in faith, speech, knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in love in which we've kindled, see that you excel in the gift of giving. Now, did you recognize the things that he was talking about there? This is, if you know 1 Corinthians well, and I'm pretty sure everybody knows this passage really well, let me read this to you. If you speak in the tongues of angels... Of men and of angels, but do not have love. I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophesying, fathom all mysteries and knowledge, and I have faith that I can move mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all my possessions to the poor, give my body over to hardship, and that I may boast, but I do not have love, I gain nothing. And here he talks about the same things. The same things he talked about the Corinthians in the last, well, the pre, one of his previous letters. Faith. Speech. Knowledge, love. See, the, the Corinthians, they, they wanted to be super, they wanted to grow in their faith. They wanted to, to grow as Christians. They wanted to grow in all those wonderful things of, of being able to speak eloquently about Jesus. They wanted to be a Bible teaching church. They wanted to be a worshipful church. They wanted, to, they wanted to have knowledge and deep knowledge. And they wanted to live lives of faith. And they, they were striving to do that. But Paul here is concerned that they strive with equal fervor to become a giving church, a church which is known for its generosity. And he does, does this because 
generosity ultimately will show what's going on in their hearts in verse 8. He says, I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. It's not about having deep pockets. It's about having deep hearts. Paul says, look at the Macedonians. Look at their hearts. Look how deep their hearts are. I want you to grow in the gift of giving so that your hearts can be as deep as theirs. Well, how do we grow in the gift of giving? There's a famous Christian writer, many of you will have heard of him, called Rick Warren. He wrote a book called The Purpose Driven Life. Probably the the most uh, best-sold Christian book ever outside the Bible, obviously. And he went from being a probably a, a, an averagely paid pastor in the States to being mega rich pretty much overnight as this, as this book just sold millions upon millions upon millions of copies. And how did he and his wife deal with that? Well, they started by paying back the church all the money they'd ever been paid. And then they started to reverse tithe. That means that instead of um, um, giving God 10%, they gave God 90% of their income because they could afford to live just on the 10%. But even before they had that money, and this is the key thing, it's not that, that God gave them lots of money, then they were able to be generous. Even before they had that money, um, Rick and his wife had the commitment that when they got married, they would give 10% to the Lord, and every year they increased their giving to the Lord by 1%. They, they, for years and years and years, they kept increasing their giving. They would come back and look at their finances and see how they could be more and more generous to the Lord and his people. And so because that was their heart, they wanted to be more and more generous. When they're all of a sudden filled with more money than they could ever imagine, they're generous. Money's lost its grip on their lives and they're free. We can grow in the gift of giving. Rick Warren said this, why did he do it? Because every time I give, it breaks the grip of materialism in my life. Every time I give, it breaks the grip of materialism in my life. In my last church, I was really moved by the pastor. He's a really generous man. And he would tell me that every six months, he and his wife would sit down, look at their, annual, look at their accounts, not for the purpose of figuring out how they were going to afford their next holiday, but so they could ask the questions. The only question they asked, how can we be more generous with what we have? So how can we improve our giving? Well, it's a gift that we need to develop generosity. It's, it's like a muscle. If you don't exercise it, it's not going to get bigger. We're not going to get better at it. We need to stretch it and try it. And it starts with a little, and it works up with there. It works up from there. If you don't have much, if, you, if, you, if you're not giving a lot at the moment, why not just give a little bit more? See where you could give, put that in place of the Lord's service. It starts with small things and grows. How can we continually increase on becoming more and more generous and grow in the gift of giving? But the truth is, willpower alone won't do this. Now, we do need to try hard and strive, and it will, we will, do need to pour our will into it, but willpower alone won't do it. What we need is to be rescued. 
We need to be rescued from the grip of this world. And so Paul, in verse 9, gives us one of the most wonderful verses in the whole of Scripture, and he gives us the Savior who will rescue us from our, um, the, the, ch- the choke grip of wealth. And what it says is this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. You know, the Macedonians are amazing, not because simply they gave, but this was the joy that was in their heart. You remember that in verse 2? I didn't really talk about it, did I? But in verse 2 it says, it was extreme poverty and severe trial plus joy. Joy. And because of the joy, they were able to be generous. And where did that joy come from? It came from knowing this. They wanted to look more and more like the Savior who rescued them. And look at this wonderful Savior, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. He was rich beyond, our, beyond anyone's wildest dreams. He, he's, he's the one who called all of the universe into existence just with words. There is nothing that he's lacking. He, he doesn't need anything from anyone. He's completely and utterly self-contained God. He, he, he is completely able to, he's sufficient for himself in every single way. And he's, he, he's up, he was up in heaven, worshipped by millions upon millions of angels, experiencing joy and riches beyond anything we could ever imagine. And he's experienced that for all eternity. And he had that ahead of him for all eternity. Nothing could strip that away from him. Nothing could take that away from him. And what does he do? Well, we're told that he left heaven and came to earth. And he left all those riches, not to be born in a castle, but to be born in a stable and placed in a feeding trough. You know, that's a staggering distance. We, nobody can imagine that. You know, Donald Trump, when he became president, he, he talked about how he was actually taking a step down in his living style to move out of Trump Tower and move into the White House, to stop flying in, in, Trump, in his private jet and then flying in Air Force One. You know, he, he took a pay cut, a significant pay cut to become the President of the United States. But however many hundreds of millions he lost each year that he's President of the United States, that is nothing compared to what Jesus did. He, he came from heaven to earth. And it, it's not just that he came to earth. He was born into a poor family. He grew up as a carpenter and he worked a normal job. Then what did he do? He, he didn't just live off the finance. He, 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 he left his work to become a traveling, homeless preacher. He gave up his wealth on earth as well. And he had all sorts of friends and he, that, that walked around the earth with him and maybe he had those. But we're told when he got to the cross... There was no one with him. Everyone abandoned him. Everyone deserted him. And he's hung on a cross in absolute shame. Stripped naked. He doesn't even own an item of clothing to cover his nakedness. As he is dripping with blood after the beating he's received. The king of heaven, who was rich, became poor. You know what? That's... You still have, we still haven't figured out the depth of the poverty Jesus experienced. Because on the cross, we're told he became sin for us. He 
became sin for us. The one who is ultimately righteous became sin. And God's wrath, the wrath of the Father, was poured upon him. Nobody has ever experienced the poverty, the shame, the indignity that Christ faced on that cross. And we will never fathom how much he went through. But why did he go through that? Was it so that he could be richer at the end? No. How could you possibly add to God's riches? No. It's so that we, through him, might become rich. So that we might enjoy those riches that he experienced before. Eternal everlasting joy that's going to go on forever and ever and ever. He went through that to get us there. Generosity. Wow. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. But he did. Wow. That's where the Macedonians' joy came from. They knew this Savior. And it's one of the themes in 2 Corinthians that if you want to know what genuine Christian ministry looks like, it looks like Jesus. It looks like giving up everything. It looks like dying. It looks like sacrifice. It looks like pain. If you're truly following Jesus, that's where it will lead, but will end in ultimate glory. And God will do amazing things through our suffering for the gospel. Do we want to grow in generosity? We need to spend more time gazing at Jesus. If we spend time just looking at him on a daily basis and thinking about what he's done for us, it will be hard to be stingy. As we gaze at him, we will change. We need to gaze at Jesus. We need to trust our lives into the hands of God. And we need to practice our giving. A little bit at a time. Increasing in this gift of grace. So that's my first point, extravagant Christian giving. My next ones aren't going to be as long, like I said. Acceptable Christian giving. See, this is a big question. What is acceptable Christian giving? How, how do we give in a right way to God? Well, um, they, part, part of the thing is that they had, uh, the Corinthians had to follow through with their promises. So a year earlier when Paul was with them, they promised that they were going to give to the, the needs of the church. Isn't that amazing? A year later, they're still gathering up this collection while Jerusalem is, is still struggling. It take, took that long to, to get the money to them. Okay. Um, and then Paul is telling them that he wants them in verse 11 to finish the work so that your eager willingness to do so may be matched by your completion in according to do, to do it. You know, acceptable giving is that in one sense you're just following through with what you've promised to do. Okay. That's an important thing. But then this is it, it's also in accordance to your means. That's an interesting phrase at the end of verse 11. And it's worth just spending a bit of time thinking, what does it mean to be, to, 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 to be in accordance with your means? Um, could it, does that mean that when you've got a better paid job? Well, it can't be that, can it? It can't be just when you're more wealthy than you are now, because the Macedonians weren't wealthy at all, and, and, and they gave. Um, is it when, once you've spent everything you need to spend on yourself and out of your excess? Is that what it is? Well, it 
can't be that, can it? Because that's not what it meant to the Macedonians, because they were giving more than that. I think it, our means are literally everything that is at our disposal. That, that, that is our means. That is the Christian means. What do we have at our disposal? What has God given to us? What, what has God generously, graciously given to us? See, this, the picture in the Bible isn't that, that we scrap around on this earth to try and make a living for ourselves. It's that God generously gives us all things. He's the one who owns a cattle on a thousand hills. And he gives us our means. It's a generous gift from God so that we can then be generous to others. Verse 12, for if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Does not have. It's an important thing there. I think um, in the Old Testament, tithing was a principle that was, that was laid out. It was a command that you would give the, the first 10% of what you earn to God, and then you would keep the rest. In the New Testament, we don't, there's not so much talking about tithing. It is mentioned a couple of times, but this is probably the clearest Line in thinking through what does Christian giving look in light of the gospel? It looks like this being willing to give a gift according to what, um, what you do have, not what you don't have. So it's p- thinking about what you have, planning how you can give, willingly giving it according to what you have. It's not about getting yourself into debt through giving, it's about looking at what you can give and then willingly giving it. We're not, we're not, saying, we're not saying it has to be millions of pounds. You're not saying that at all. It's just what can you give? And then agreeing on that amount and then sticking to it. Because the point is equality. Our desire is not that others may be relieved in verse 13 while you are hard-pressed, but that it might be equality. Do you know where the most expensive house in the world is built? It's built in... Um, Mumbai, it's a massive 49-floor skyscraper. Cost billions of pounds to create. And it's, from its windows, you can see the slums. You see, God doesn't make, give some of us money and others not so that some people can skeek a meager living in the slums and other Christians can be well off. God gives money in different ways so that we can grow in our relationship with God as we give. And if we haven't got money, it's so that we can grow in our relationship with God as we trust that God will provide for us. God has given us all the money we need to support every Christian with what they need. The problem is, it's in our pockets. It's in my pocket. We need to be generous with that. God wants us to have enough. What is your means? What are you willing to give? Start giving it. Third point, accountable Christian giving. So we're talking about being generous with money, and we have to trust people in order to do that, don't they? So Paul then moves on to start talking about accountability, and there's there's two kind of halves to this. Um, The first half is 16 to 24, where Paul is is aware, and I think the church is aware, that where there's a, a, a lot of money involved, liberal gifts, there's an opportunity for that money to be mishandled. Um, and the, the people are concerned that it looks, the, the way it's handled is dealt with correctly. I mean, think it has to be the case, doesn't it? I mean, Paul has just accepted a gift from a, from a poor, struggling church. 
You know, uh, so it's, it's right that they should be seen to handle that money correctly. And how do they do that? Well, we're told in verses 16 to 19 and in verse 22 that a number of brothers are sent. So Paul is, will, ultimately collect the, 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 will ultimately collect the money, but Titus will go. And then there's this un, two unnamed brothers in verse 13, the brother who is praised by all the churches, so a trustworthy man of the gospel. All the churches know him, and they, they know he's reliable, and they can, they can trust him with their money. And then there's another brother down in verse 22 is also unnamed, possibly Luke. We're not 100% sure. Um, a brother who has often proved us in many ways that he is zealous. Okay, so, so there's this band of trustworthy people that are called to, to handle God's, the money that's being given to the church in Jerusalem so that it can be seen to be looked after correctly. So verse 20, we want to avoid any criticism by the way... Um, of the way we administer this liberal gift. And in verse 21, we are, we are taking pains to do what is right, not only in the eyes of the Lord, but in the eyes of man. So Paul is concerned that he knows that money is deceitful above all, all things. He wants to make sure that he, they all handle this money rightly in a way that honors God, because he knows God sees them. But he's also aware that other people are looking at how that money is handled. I wonder if any of you have seen some of those documentaries about how Big American preachers use the money that is, that, is, that is founded into their ministries about how they fund private jets off the backs of offering promises to poor people. And that doesn't look good in the world's eyes. And it shouldn't. That's appalling. That's horrible. That is not what this is talking about. We need to be aware that the world will look upon us and they will judge us by how we handle the money that we have. And we need to act in ways that are accountable. So we need to take great care as we handle money as a church. We need to have transparency and accountability. And we need to, that money that is sacrificed needs to be handled with great um, respect and with great wisdom um, for your sake, for the sake of the Lord and for the sake of um, the world's eyes. So we need to be thankful for the team of people that we have in this church who look after our finances. We need to pray for them. Pray for Graham Birch, Barry Hills, who, who, who are our treasurers, who, who help us to think through our money on a yearly basis. Pray for, those, for the people in the ministry team and other people in the church who handle budgets on a regular basis. Pray for Michael Gilby and Graham Legg who, who patiently take the money in, count it that's given, and then bank it. All these are really important jobs, and we are, should be praising the Lord for the fact that we have praiseworthy men and women in our church whom we can trust with such tasks and we need to pray for them our finance team is a generous gift from God to help us to give generously so there's church-wide accountability and then there's this other kind of accountability that comes up next in in nine verses one to five we need to be accountable for the financial commitments we make so Paul is sending Titus and he's confident that they're going to give um, but previously, the Corinthians have been quick to make a commitment. And that, that, is, that, that commitment is what inspired the Macedonians to give their money. In, verse, in 9 verse 2, For I know your eagerness to help, and I have been boasting about it in Macedonians, telling them that since last year in Archaea, you were all ready to give, and your enthusiasm stirred up most of them to action. So now it's important that they follow through with what they have said. You see, they are accountable to the wider church for the commitments that they've made. 
Look, Paul's saying, look, you, you've made this commitment. You said you're going to look after these Christians. Now do it. You're accountable to them. How you act will affect other churches. So do it. They must keep their word. And that's why Paul is sending these brothers ahead. So that by the time it's necessary to take up the offering, they're ready to do it. They're not, they're not um, frozen, think, counting the money, think, um, so, so that it could come across wrongly. But, but they're ready to give, eager to give, so that, so that their eagerness is seen by all. Jesus says, no one builds a tower without first counting the cost. So that they know that they have enough money to, to follow it through. We need to, to take our responsibilities that we've taken up as a church and as individuals. And we need to follow through with them. Because we are accountable to them for the giving that we have committed to do. We're accountable. Giving must be taken seriously. And finally, the last point, cheerful Christian giving. Could have used a few different words for this one, but this is one of those phrases that seems rather counterintuitive, doesn't it? Giving cheerfully. But don't we want to do that? Don't we want to be cheerful givers? Paul encourages them in verse 6 that that he wants them to be generous people. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, but whoever sows generously will also reap generously. And then Paul says this in verse 7, each of you should give what you've decided. So it's that idea again, being, making a decision, thinking clearly about what you can afford to give according to your means, and then give it, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, this is not a get-out clause. It's important to get that. This isn't that Paul is saying, if you're not a cheerful giver, you can keep the money to yourself. That's not what he's saying, I'm afraid. Okay, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, plan ahead so that you can give cheerfully. Now, let me give you a personal example about how this this kind of works. Well, my giving generally is is pretty good when it comes to things like my regular monthly giving. So if if I'm supporting a missionary or supporting other people, then I plan that monthly and I work out what I can give them when I do give. Um, And I work out how much we can afford to give to the church and and we give that. Um, Where I have struggled is with the three uh, three times a year uh, offerings that we have, you know, at harvest time, at Easter, at Christmas. And and I know they're coming. I always know they're coming. Um, But it always seems like it hits me by surprise, maybe a day or two before or even sometimes on the Sunday morning, that I've actually not real thought about how much I'm going to give. So what do I do? I, I, oh, crumbs, I need to give something. What am I going to do? Oh, oh, what have I got? Oh, I, I need to go to the bank. I'll put it in tonight. You know? And what happens is I don't think it through properly. And what happens is then I give reluctantly. And I give under compulsion. Not because I don't have the money, but because I didn't plan ahead. So this is an area that I need to grow in. And please, this is a dangerous thing to say, hold me accountable to that. Next time we have an offering, tell me a week in advance. Say, Ben, make sure you're ready. Ben, make sure you're ready. So that when it comes, I can cheerfully give because I've made a decision well in advance, thought about it carefully, know what my means are, and I've willingly given that to the service of the Lord. And then I can give it cheerfully. And why, how can we do all this? Well, ultimately because God is the cheerful giver. We've already heard about how much he gave his son, and you can't really top that, but Paul tells us more in verse 8. God is 
able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor and their righteousness endures forever. See, I think it's important that we get this right. It's not that God says when we give out financially, God is going to give us back financially. That's not what this is saying. This is saying that when we give generously, God will provide all our needs, yes, absolutely, but we will, we will have a harvest of righteousness. A harvest of righteousness. That is greater worth than a full bank account. He promises that he will be generous to us in that way. And ultimately, we, we can give cheerfully. God is a cheerful giver. And then as people see the generosity of God's people, Paul says that it will ultimately result in cheerfulness of others as they express this in praise to God in verse 12. This is the service you perform. It's not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. And then people, he goes on to say that people will pray for you in verse um, 13. So, when God's people partake in extravagant, acceptable, accountable, cheerful Christian giving, God will be praised. He'll be praised in our lives and as people see what we do. And right at the end, Paul brings us back to the source of all our generosity to God in verse 15. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. He's giving us the gift of giving. He's given us the gift of our means. Every penny we have, every breath we take is a gift that he has provided for us. He's given us the, the gift of godly men who would administer our giving. He's given us the gift of a daily provision for all our needs, especially righteousness. And most importantly, he has given us the gift of his son who became poor so that we might become rich. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank and praise you for the picture of Christ. And just in a few moments, we'll be coming to the table, and I'm sure we'll be remembering this again. But I pray, Lord, that you would make us a people who spend our time gazing at Jesus so that we might become like him, so that when the world sees how we use our money, they won't see an other version of the world, but, Lord, they would see something utterly different. Lord, I pray that you'd continually challenge me in this area, not allow me to squirm out of it, but to follow through with what you place on my heart. And I pray that for all of us, that you would make us ever more into generous people who reflect the generous nature of our God. Amen.